Well, that's a real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the Mafia. Keeps them guessing like some kind of parlor game prevents them from asking the most important question, why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where we are still in the world of Oliver Stone's JFK. I am Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. I'm, uh, my name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California. And uh, now, uh, I don't know, uh, just <laughs> really kind of um, enjoying this conversation, enjoying this analysis, and reevaluating my opinion of this movie and my approach to conspiracy theories the deeper we get into this conversation and the more I watch this film through 2023 eyes. This has been a really illuminating experience with you, Steve, and it's, it's been fun. I, I thought initially it was going to be fun to talk about it. Now it's become like a real process for me as well as maybe some of you all who are listening to us are going through your own processes as you, as you revisit this film now. Well, A, I, I totally agree. This has been a great conversation and new things keep coming up and I keep thinking about it and reevaluating. But it, And I know we're going to talk about it, I'm sure, as we go, but I'm curious, what is the... Like what shifted? Like, can can you kind of explain what sort of shifted for you in this process? Yeah, as as we are going to get into this section of the movie, um, I watched, rewatched it twice. Um, <laughs> yeah, because when I watch Costner battling with Rooker in that panel, in that scene, the big scene when when Rooker walks off, and the things that he is saying and the way he's laying things out. And then the way Rooker is countering him, this is a fascinating exploration of how conspiracy theories now have become mainstream. They're really the obsession of a particular political party right now, although both political parties or all political parties really have their conspiracy theories, whether they're low key or main uh, main thought processes within their own um, political parties. But we have that idea. And so watching him lay this out and then just casually toss out certain facts as if, well, I'm just pontificating. I'm just, you know, I'm just throwing this out there. Like I was listening, listening to, and I, and I, again, we're not going to get political, but I was listening to Maria Bartiromo today on Fox as we're recording this. And she's like, well, is it, she was asking a sitting representative, isn't it possible that China uh, created COVID, unleashed it on the United States so they could get Trump out and get Biden in for the presidency so they could ma- manipulate him for themselves to make money. And I was like, how deep down the wormhole do you have to go to think about this, to say something like this? But you're a person who is representing a network on a mainstream network that people watch in the millions every day. And so watching Costner do this is the moment that I was like, oh, wow. Like, I thought this was an innocent and unsettling conspiracy theory. And now seeing it laid out the way Costner lays it out, it mirrors what I've seen other people do with their platforms with conspiracy theories. And here's the other part of this, which I, I had to really come to this moment. The fact that I believed this conspiracy theory back, and I still kind of do, back then, it was because I felt that as my uh, political leanings go more left, more liberal, even though I feel like I'm a little more middle um, now, uh, 
I thought I was right and that the government had it. And then I was like, wow, I have to reevaluate how other people look at these conspiracy theories nowadays because the government is well, who I saw as the bad guy in my conspiracy right. theories when I was younger, believing the, the uh, JFK one. And these people see the government just as strongly as I do as having participated in conspiracy theories. So it really fucked me up for a while um, over the weekend um, thinking about all of this and like having to reevaluate my approach. And I, I had resisted in the first two parts of our conversation, people connecting this conspiracy theory to conspiracy theories that we see nowadays. And although I don't think they are valid, the ones nowadays, I am now coming to a place of understanding how people can actually believe this as fervently as I may believe the JFK conspiracy theory. And I just found myself like having to reevaluate myself a little bit on how I approach that. So that's where the switch happened and what happened. for me. Gotcha. It's, it's, it's so funny because I've been thinking along very much the same lines. And the thing that I was thinking about, because, because it was like Oliver Stone, mm. who believed there were these deep government conspiracies was a clear nut, a nutbag of the left. Mm-hmm. Because yes. that was the narrative of the extreme left that there were secret conspiracies within the government, and of course there were against the Black Panthers, against all the you know those sure. things are sure. those sure. things are true. Yeah. Um, but whether or not they go to the level that Oliver Stone went to, that's where we get into some iffy places. And today, that's the providence of the right is those yeah. conspiracies that there's the deep state and all those things. Yeah. And so, and the big thing I've been thinking about is that I have gone from. This is a fascinating movie that is filled with things that are not necessarily factual to now I'm going, I think this movie should be taught in school, not, not because of its truth, but because we so have to work on the skills of being able to recognize that's a fact, that's a fact. And now you've gone into the world of speculation, right? Because it's a very gray line, you know, and when you, when you hear people and I'm not going to say what person uses this phrase the most. But yeah. when you hear someone say, people are saying dot, 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 right. that's not a fact, but right. it is exactly the kind of tool that is used or the, as you were just mentioning, isn't it possible that dot, yeah. dot, dot, it's yeah. like, well, you're out of facts now and you're into right. speculation, but if you put them right next to facts, it feels, and that's what ha- is particularly as we're moving into the second half of the movie. Yeah. That's what happens all the time. Here's a fact. Yeah. Let's speculate. And then we yeah. go off on a journey. Like when we get to that scene where he breaks off, Rooker leaves and storms out, Costner or uh, Jim Garrison says, now this is me just speculating, but isn't it possible that this was on the memo, this, this, this was on the memo? I I have the exact same notes on this moment. Right. And then then somebody goes, says something to counter that. And he goes, well, that can be the only reason. And so, so it's no longer a theory. It is now something you actually believe, but you try to soft pitch it. Uh, so that people would come on board. And I do want to say to anybody who's listening to us, who maybe has the political, or I tell you what, if you were someone who scoffed at the JFK conspiracy theories and was like, oh, you liberal left, you nut, you nutties, you nutballs, you think this thing, and you've embraced some of these conspiracy theories that are out nowadays, what is it like for you to revisit this? Are you now reevaluating scoffing at this conspiracy theory because you've embraced conspiracy theories yourself. I'd be very curious if there's anyone in our audience who had the reverse reaction that I've had or reverse journey rather than I've had that I've had on this uh, thing. So just tossing it out there to be fair, you know, on both sides. Well, it, it, well, and the fact is there are conspiracy theories on the left and there are, I mean, yes. you and I particularly privately have had conversations where I've gone, man, this is really, 
this is bugging me. And I, you know, like, <laughs> uh, even from people, people who I respect and who I really like will say a yeah. thing. And I'm like, and it's exactly what we're talking about. Okay. You had some facts and then you leapt to this other conclusion or built right. something off speculations that happens to everybody. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so At the end of the day, it's been a fascinating experience, Steve. Yeah. Um, so where we left off, uh, Jim Garrison had just brought in Clay Shaw for their conversation. And at the end of it, and again, on a level that both you and I kind of questioned, he was like, we got one. Yeah. And I'm going, what exactly did you get that seemed absolute proof that this guy killed the president? I don't think right. you got anything um, other than the fact that he seems to be lying about his sexual dalliances. But Jim Garrison believes they are on the right trail. Yeah. And he heads home, of course, to his wife who had waited all day for him in the restaurant where he didn't show up. We waited for hours, Jim. Honey, you could have telephoned. I, I, know, I don't know what to say, except I'm sorry. All right? I, just, I just don't have rabbits on my mind. Yeah, I had forgotten that Garrison takes a moment. You see Costner go like, right before he walks through the door, because he knows he's going to get the third degree. And this is a really fascinatingly constructed scene in terms of, and this is all one shot, by the way. It's oh, I didn't notice that. Right, yeah, it's a fantastic uh, choreographed scene because he walks in and immediately Sally Field, uh, sorry, it's not Sally Field, uh, Sissy Spacek is coming down the stairs, crosses across the hall into the kitchen, gives her the gives him the cold high, and then moves into the living room and starts to turn off the lights as she's yelling or as she's voicing her displeasure with what he's done and his insensitivity and inconsideration and his kids are there trying to get his attention at the same time. So it's a fascinating buildup that leads to their final, you know, rough exchange on the stairs. But it, it was so well constructed as a scene in terms of the blocking that I was really just impressed with how they were able to shoot this and uh, convey what they wanted to convey emotionally about what's going on between their in their relationship. All day, the kids are asking, where's daddy? What am I supposed to tell your kids, Jim? I don't know what to tell them. How about the truth? I'm doing my job to make sure they grow up in a country where justice won't be an arcane, vanished idea they read about no, in history books. That sounds real bad. Like the dinosaurs or the lost continent Atlantis. place a husband or a father on Easter Sunday. I, I, the, the weird thought I had here is hmm. many people for whom the goal is to live the normal life mm -hmm. that they grew up to live. So for Liz, it is your family and your kids. And on Easter Sunday, you go to Antoine's and right. you have a certain status and participate in the community. And that's what it is. And there are other people who believe that their purpose in life is something bigger than normal. You know yes. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> frankly, I, I won't say which one I think I am, but like the, the, you know, the gym is like, my job is more important. Like I have important yeah. things to do and Liz just can't see it, you know? Yeah. And, and you know what, again, it's fascinating because when I was younger and watched this movie, I was on Garrison's side, you know, yeah. like she's being a, a nag. She's like, blah, blah, blah. but watching it again as an older person, I absolutely understand every word that Sissy Spacek is saying and every emotion Garrison could have absolutely called. Garrison could have had those moments where, like that is, I read, I discovered as I got older that that is a very big deal to me. You just have to communicate. I don't care if you go off for hours. Just let me know what's happening so I can put it in a context and I can move on with my day. And the fact that he didn't, it was, it's an incredible amount of an inconsideration that he's displaying here. And I'll go an, another step with this, Steve. I watched this scene 
And again, you asked me where the switch happened. This was the beginning of the switch. Because in my mind, this scene is a microcosm of what has probably been happening over the last few years in a lot of houses in our country and in maybe other countries where a family member is saying, how can you be so obsessed with this conspiracy theory? And the family member that is obsessed with the conspiracy theory is saying, how can you not see this? This is important. Our country is going down the drain. We're losing what we're supposed to be. The ethics and the morality of our country is at stake here. The actual construction of our country is at stake here. And so we've heard that from people who have embraced these conspiracy theories lately. So I imagine this battle has happened between husband and wives, fathers and daughters, fathers and sons, mothers and sons, mothers and daughters, or in parents versus children and parents and versus their brothers and sisters, you know, things of that nature. So to me, watching this scene, it had even more poignancy than it ever has before. And I just found that to be fascinating, man. Well, this is, you know, life is about balance. Yeah. And and that balance can get, because because there is a time where, you know, the actual armies are invading and no, I can't show up at the restaurant for right. Easter Sunday because right. I have to go fight to protect my country. And there is another time where you're just not showing up at the restaurant on Easter Sunday. Yeah. And, and by the, by the way, I, I won't even get started on the just respond courteously. You could have taken 30 <laughs> seconds to do that thing. And then I can go on with my day. That is a big deal for me. Yeah. Just, just, just let me, just let me know. I, yeah. It's fine. Um, the, oh, the, yeah, the, the, and what's really hard is figuring out, like, I know some people who, if I start to bring up politics, they're like, I can't think about that. Like, yeah. that's, it's too upsetting to me Right to yeah. do that. I need to protect. So to protect myself, I have to not be involved in that thing. And, you know, we're facing serious shit in the world. Whichever yeah. side you're on is serious shit going on. Yeah. And it's hard to find, strike that right balance. Yeah. And some people just want to function within their lives because they yeah. have children and they have responsibilities and they don't want to, they can't go down that road because it really does wreck them. And so, yeah, it's a great point you bring up, Steve. Well, and it's honestly, you know, we've had this, and as a Jewish person, I'm having these conversations right now of like, again, it's always, how do you know that you're not in 1933 in Germany, you know? And for Jim Garrison at this moment, that's what he's thinking. Yeah, he's going. Well, if this is a real conspiracy, and if the government really killed their own head of state, yeah, we're in deep shit. Like it's a really scary time. And again, I can't go to Antoine's to have Easter dinner. You know, right, right. Um, so the news is starting to get out, and the reporters are coming after Jim Garrison. He has to fight his way through them to get to the office, and now they've got how much money they're spending, travel expenses. Somehow they think maybe Shaw put the word out to the reporters. And and Jim, I think rightly, you know, he asked jokingly who wanted to quit and they all raised their hands a few scenes ago. And now he says, Bear in mind, each of you, this may affect the rest of your careers, your lives. Any one of you who want to pull out now, I assure you, I will bear no ill feelings towards that person. I'll reassign you to regular duties. And where they all raised their hands before to say they wanted to quit. They all want to stay on at this point. The other thing you hear is that he is giving his National Guard money to pay for the expenses to investigate this case. Yeah. You know, we talked about, you know, I said we should use this in schools to teach how to judge the information you're seeing. When a dude puts up his own money, that's, that's a sign of someone's heart being in the right place. That doesn't mean they're correct. 
Right, but right. it is a sign that they gen- they're not doing it for selfish reasons, you know. No, they generally believe it. Yeah, yeah. And then we get a call, and Lou answers it, and someone is yelling at him, and he realizes it's D- it's David Ferry who says, "Since you're the only straight shooter in that fucking office, I'd like a fucking answer from you. Did you plan it?" This next scene is crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is also the scene where I go, "Okay, I know that they end up nominating Tommy Lee Jones for best supporting actor." Mm. This is a best supporting actor scene for Joe Pesci, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. No one was quoting Clay Shaw lines after JFK. Everyone was quoting Dave Ferry lines after JFK. Who are you scared of, Dave? Me? Everybody. Agency, mob, Cubans. Because now that this word is out, and he even if his name wasn't in whatever this article was in, everyone knows that he's now a part of it, and he's pretty sure he's going to get killed. And here's where... Oliver Stone is complicit in the conspiracy theory mania, right? You're showing a scene where a guy is completely off his rocker in fear, and he is like checking the windows, looking down, opening the blinds, checking rooms. He is freaking out. Costner or Garrison is the epitome of calm. He's sitting there, the calm, the eye in the storm. He's the calm in the storm as Fairy is like literally like a ferret dancing from left to right, going in all the different places, just going insane about what this all means. And it leads to that moment. He's like, well, who killed the president? He's like, oh, man, you killed kill the president. Oh, man. And he just loses it on that. And finally, he runs out of energy because clearly he's been drugged up or he's just like the, man- the mania of it all. And he sits down and he is just in this place of now utter vulnerability and confesses all this stuff about him uh, being a uh, wanting to be a priest and that they defrocked him because I guess he's homosexual and 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 seeing the destruction of him. So that is Stone in a way showing you that this cons- this stuff was so scary that someone like Dave Ferry, who we have seen in numerous scenes up to this point, be quite strong, aggressive, pushy, and in charge of stuff, is absolutely. Uh, completely uh, off his rocker in fear that he is going to be killed. So it reinforces the fact that these are very big, overwhelming forces, which he actually says to Garrison. And so you as the audience member, emotionally and subconsciously, you're actually buying into this more and more because you've connected to this character and watching him flip out like that makes you even more willing to believe the conspiracy theory and who were involved. Well, and this is one where I go, you know, as I said earlier, talking about how do you separate the fact from the fabrication? Mm. And I, I, I am fairly confident that the earlier scene with David Ferry, where he act, asked him about the drive to Houston, and the goose hunt, my guess is that that was recorded and there is right. evidence of what happened in that scene. Yeah. Was this scene, is there <laughs> evidence that this scene happened or that any of the things said in this scene were said? Right. I, I, I and I don't really know, you know. Yeah, no. Um, there, there's, yeah, there's no actual evidence that was ever recorded in this conversation. This is all the writers in stone kind of putting things together and creating a scene. Well, and you know, as an actor, if I gave you a single line of dialogue, there's probably 15 different ways you could say that thing and give it 15 different meanings. And so even if we knew that David Ferry said this thing, we don't know if he said it like this, right? you know, like, and like this is a completely freaked out, paranoid guy who is obviously part of a huge organization and is terrified that he will be killed because that huge conspiracy can kill anybody. That's the scene, yeah. you know? 
And this is also why you cast Joe Pesci, because Pesci brings a natural uh, energy that you want to believe in when you watch him in a role like this. So it does the work for you as well as an audience member subconsciously. And during this scene, he does reveal that Clay Shaw is part of the CIA. He does admit that he knew Oswald. He does admit that he trained him. Nobody really liked him because they thought it was a snitch. But I treated him good. He talked about his kid, you know, really wanted to grow up with a chance. <laughs> and then I love the moment where there's like the knock on the door with room service. And that's like, what's this? What's going on here? <laughs> Even more paranoia shoots out. And, yeah. and, 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 and to the point of, oh, this guy's gone around the bend because at one point he goes we almost had Castro with us then we tried to whack him everybody's flipping sides all the time it's funny games man funny games what about the mob Dave how do they fit in this the agency too man CIA and the mafia working together trying to whack out the beard mutual interest they've been doing it for years totally crazed yeah and then we get to as they're trying to get clear answers they ask who killed the president and Joe Pesci this is one of the great quotable. It's like um, we're through the looking glass, people. What is yeah. what's about to happen? He goes, yeah. "Oh man, why don't you fucking stop it? Shit, who did? This is too fucking big for you. You know that? This is who did the president? Who killed Ken? Fuck, man! It's it's a mystery. It's a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma. The fucking shooters don't even know. Don't you get it? It's crazy. All the stuff he's saying. The fact that the shooters wouldn't know." That doesn't make any sense, by the way. Doesn't. But I mean, what what makes sense of what he's saying, right? I mean, him flipping out about everything. The CIA and the mob working together, that's certainly part of uh, of the conspiracy a lot of people thought was going on there. And then then later, we'll get, when we get to the Donald Sutherland scene, that's really hammered home. Um, But yeah, all these things that he's just spouting out because he's, there's kernels of truth, but his paranoia is getting the best of him and he's just like connecting these dots. He's essentially a walking conspiracy theory himself with all the things that he believes are connected to all of this because he is such a low level person in all of this that really how much could you believe that he'd have access to to be able to verify a conspiracy theory like this, you know? And and then he's just spent. Yeah. And and, and Joe Pesci just I really don't think I gave him as much credit as he deserved as a great actor until more recently where I sort of kind of put it all together. And, you know, we did my cousin Vinny when we did the watch along and I'm like, oh, no, this guy is amazing. And this moment of him sort of sinking down on the couch and just going. They're untouchable, man. I'm so fucking exhausted. I can't see straight. It's a great, great moment. He just cracks. He just cracks. Yeah. And you feel bad for him. Like, oh, you yeah. You feel bad for him in the whole movie. But because Pesci is such a good actor, in that moment, we've all been at that where we've been so exhausted that we're just like, all the walls are down. And his performance in that moment, as all the walls are down, is so empathetic that you're like, fuck, I actually feel sympathy for this guy. I should not feel sympathy for this guy, but I do. So here's an interesting one. Oliver Stone in shooting this scene wanted to do it largely in one take and he wanted to get it done in just a few takes because he knew that Joe Pesci wouldn't be able to keep doing this over and over again. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a director taking care of his actor. That's awesome. Yeah. And that scene just sort of ends at that down level. And then again, now there are even more reporters coming after them. Yeah. Uh, And then what's interesting is the dynamic that's going to start now is the tension within his team. 
because it seems yeah. very clear that Lou is the connector for David Ferry, and he wants more, and he is concerned about this guy. My instinct is that Ferry's gonna keep on deteriorating, we'll end up getting more out of him when he finally cries. Oh, bullshit, now if you start- If we call him in now, he might freeze up, we'll lose the best shot we ever had. You guys had. don't get it, do you? He can't go down any further. We got to protect him full time. We don't have enough friends to protect anybody full time. I know time. what you're going through with Ferry, Lou. All right, we'll, we'll talk tomorrow. And then the other thing we find out is that this guy that he mentioned, Eladio Del Valle, uh, which is one of his associates through the mob, maybe, has yeah. also been killed. His paymaster. Yeah. And then in comes Wayne Knight, gesturing in this odd way about something that Jim will find very interesting, which is that the offices have been bugged. Bugging the DA's office. This is outrageous. And this is also when we hear that Jim is going to head off to Washington. And yeah. as they're reacting to that, the phone rings and Lou answers it and says, Dave Ferris dead. This goes into the, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. That That is a genuinely dramatic moment. Yeah. yeah. That obviously really happened. Like if you're watching this, or you don't know anything about the conspiracy theory, right? And then Ferry dies right after this big scene where he's afraid that he's going to be killed. And we've seen already allusions to people who've been killed who were witnesses. Yeah. Like it just adds yet another layer, a bigger layer on top of this belief that this is true. This really did happen. You know? Well, it, and again, it goes back to this thing of personally, do I believe there was a conspiracy? Yes, I do. Mm. I do not think that Oswald acted alone. And if there's more people involved, that's a conspiracy. Right. It's proving what the conspiracy is, yes. where, where we get into the real problems. It's like, always been the nebulous thing. Yeah. Was David Ferry involved in this conspiracy? Maybe. Was he killed because he was involved in the conspiracy? Maybe. And each each step that you take down the line, the maybe gets thinner. Yeah. It's not that it's not possible. It's just there's it's harder to be sure of it. Yes. Agreed. So <laughs> we go to David Ferry's place, uh, which looks like a lovely place to live. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing odd or creepy or off about it in any way. Yeah. Um, this was all, by the way, shot in one shot because he wanted that sense, a little sense of chaos, but then he still cut it up, which is sort of an interesting choice. Like normally, if you're going to cut something up, there's no reason to take the time to put it all in one shot. In this case, he did. And I think it does certainly create a real sense of chaos. Yeah. And they find two different suicide notes, both unsigned. To leave this life is for me a sweet prospect. I find nothing in it that is desirable, and on the other hand, everything that is loathsome. And then they find some pills that are for Brolord and raises the metabolism. David Ferris strike you as the kind of person with a low metabolism? Hardly. I'd say the opposite. Hypertension. And so the thought is, what if someone who didn't need this drug took a bunch of it? What would happen, and would it show up? And the answer is, it kind of might look like what happened to David Ferry. Yeah. But then they ask him to check for it, and he, the doctor, and he says, okay, but then we never find out if he checked it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And this, honestly, combined with the death of Eladio del Valle, was, that's a lot, you know, yeah. to deal with. And also, and here's, here's well, throughout the scene, right, I, I like how we're moving into these rooms. Mm -hmm. And the, the feeling of claustrophobia, the feeling of the walls closing in. You know, the feeling of messiness is all through this scene. And then when he's talking to the to the corner, I love the corner, the actor played the corner. He's just mm -hmm. so matter of fact about it all. Well, I guess so, Jim. Well, he probably died, Jim, or this or the this or that. And I love that that adds an authenticity to the interaction that's working here. 
But then what Stone does, which I think is part of how he is complicit in the conspiracy theory aspect of this all, is we cut to this quickly, these black and white images of the the Cubans we had seen with Ferry before, who were friends with Ferry before, shoving the the drugs into Ferry's mouth and trying to make him uh, swallow it all, right? So in essence, there's, in Garrison's mind, because it's black and white, in Garrison's mind, he's visualizing how Ferry might have died. And, but Stone, as the as the director, is putting those images in our heads as well to reinforce us believing that Ferry was a part of this and this nefarious group of people are killing off everybody who has any remote um, information about the conspiracy. So it's it's a fascinating scene in that way. Well, and again, there is no guidebook that says this is a recreation or a speculation, and this is this actually happened in this right. movie. Right. And so you're like. And people aren't processing. I mean, these cuts are happening really quick. Yeah. So you see, yeah, you see Ferry getting attacked and you go, oh, I saw Ferry get attacked. So he must have been attacked. You're not necessarily at each moment going true, not true. Like that's <laughs> speculation. That's a 70% chance of that. That's you can't, you're not, you're just watching the movie. Yeah. yeah. And what you see is what you see, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the ones, by, by the way, they always find fascinating is, uh, it might sound like a digression, but is all the comedy news shows like the, you know, the daily show and stuff Oh yeah, is that they'll say facts and then they will say a joke. Yeah. And the, and what is interesting to me, there was a study, I don't know if this has been repeated, but maybe 10 years ago when John Stewart was still the host and they listed all the news networks and they gave people tests on how well they understood what was actually going on in the world. And the number one result was the people who watched the daily show. Yeah. Wow. And the bottom, of course, was Fox News. And so, <laughs> and, and I think it was, it was like Daily Show and then PBS. Right. And then, you know, it went down from there. And it was just interesting to me that like a show where they are clearly saying things that aren't true after right. they say things that are true, somehow they're encoding within that process the ability to separate out. That part was the joke. You know right. what I mean? Right. But that part was true. And, and again, watching this movie, it's like, it's real hard to separate yeah. out what was, where it became speculation. Well, the joke is, as Mary Poppins would say, the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down. And so people are able to disseminate both things at the same time as they're listening to it, you know, and and separate it out, which is important. It's getting more and more important every single day. Yes. Um, Yes. So now we're worried about our case because the only people that we have to testify are Willie O'Keefe, you know, the... Kevin Bacon character and a you, you know male prostitute, a drunk, a dope fiend, uh, and Clay Shaw is an extremely respected person, and Lou clearly felt responsible for David Ferry. Shaw's yeah. going to get whacked now. How many corpses is it going to take before you lawyers figure hey, out what's you going watch on? Your mouth, oh, Barry did this to himself, and it feels like this tension has been building a long time. Yeah, yeah. Really good actors here, J.O. Sanders and Michael Rooker, just going at it. Just great uh, actors here. And Jim just starts walking out. Where are you going, boss? I don't know, Bill. I just don't and I love the moment where Lou just throws down his papers, just yeah. furious at the at the helplessness of this situation. Right, right, because he feels responsible for Ferry, right, and 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 his boss has kind of let him down by not being more on top of this stuff. And now it's led to Ferry's death. And by the way, Ferry's death, um, 
it's uh, the coroner and pathologist there concluded that it was neither a suicide or a murder, uh, mm. and that he died of a massive cerebral hemorrhage due to a congenital intracranial berry aneurysm that had ruptured at the base of his brain. And when Garrison was asked about this, <laughs> Garrison said, well, quote, I suppose it could just be a weird coincidence that the night Ferry penned two suicide notes, he died of natural causes. <laughs> so it's just an interesting situation. But it adds even more of this fe- feeling of like, something is off here. Like, I don't yeah. know what it is, but some, there's just way too many coincidences for this not to have some or maybe a big piece uh, of truth to it in terms of the conspiracy theory. Um, well, this is, I mean, these are conspiracies we've gone back to over and over again. And it's so bizarre to me, some of the connections, and I had even forgot one that you brought up, is that there's a connection to an entirely different movie you made recently. Yeah, yeah. I, I For the maybe eighth or ninth time, I was watching The Irishman on Netflix the other day. And, you know, I watched it over three days, actually, because I just watched it in the morning with my breakfast, an hour every morning. And I had no idea or totally forgot or it had got just slipped by me in all the other times I watched it. But David Ferry, the character, the person, is in The Irishman. For those of you who have only seen it once, you probably missed it as well. But if you, if you wanted to go on Netflix, you could find the scene where it is Joe Pesci as the character he's playing in The Irishman telling Robert De Niro's character that he's got to go bring this truck to a David Ferry guy. And he uses the uh, derogatory term, the F derogatory term for a homosexual in describing him and says, you got to drop this off. He's going to give you this. And uh, you're going to go down to Florida and deliver the guns. And the guns and the rifles that De Niro is delivering are the guns and rifles that are going to the Cubans who are going to be part of the Bay of Pigs and are training under David Ferry. So there is such a connection here to JFK. Now, this is a three-hour and, what, 45-minute movie or however long Irishman is. Was it necessary to show this scene? I don't think so. And there's an actor who plays David Ferry who looks almost exactly like David Ferry. Pesci looks somewhat like David Ferry, but the real David Ferry was much more skinnier, much more of a uh, frail build did have the painted on eyebrows and the wig, um, but the actor they get to play him is so unsettling. And De Niro does a double take <laughs> when he looks at um, uh, David Ferry, the character the actor playing David Ferry, as a way of like maybe signifying to the audience that he's making fun a little bit, Scorsese is, and De Niro maybe too, of Pesci playing this character in JFK. Right. And Pesci later on in the film says the same thing he says in JFK, which is we got to kill this motherfucking Kennedy. And so it's just fascinating that these connections were made. And I just want, and there's a bunch of articles that I, which I had no idea had been written. Uh, once I made this connection, I looked it up and there've been a bunch of articles in different websites recently, even that were talking about these connections between JFK and the Irishman. So just fascinating stuff uh, for me. So. Well, This is why I brought up at the very beginning of our first part of like how many movies we've done on the cinephiles that connect in one way or another. And the Irishman obviously is another one. And, uh, uh, and I, I think I mentioned with this book that I read on the Kennedy assassination, its whole theory was it's the mob. And there is a lot of talk about Jimmy Hoffa and about different mob connections that come up in the Irishman Mm -hmm. about the Kennedy assassination. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hoffa says like, if we kill, 
the head of the, if we cut off the head of the snake, Bobby Kennedy will just be another lawyer. Yep. And that is essentially what happened, you know? Yeah. Well, well, exactly what happened, right? I'm not, I'm not prepared to say, but, <laughs> right. but that does, it does seem like there's a lot of evidence in that direction. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill is out talking, apparently he has contacts with the FBI and the FBI is trying to get him and his boss to lay off. Yeah. And what's interesting to me, and again, this goes into exactly Oliver Stone telling us things right. because at the end he says, we know Oswald didn't pull that trigger. Castro did. But if that comes out, there's going to be a war, boy. Millions of people are going to die. There's many interesting things about this conversation because, A, we don't know that this ever happened. Right. That And, B, the FBI guy is putting forth, forth a different theory yeah. than what Oliver Stone wants you to believe because Oliver Stone wants you to believe that the FBI guy is lying to Bill in order to cover up yeah. what the FBI's actual involvement in the murder of JFK is. And again, Steve, <laughs> here is a film that I watched for many, many years. And I was okay with assuming the FBI might have been involved. The CIA might have been involved in a conspiracy theory. And yet here I am in 2023 doubting people who believe the FBI and the CIA are involved right. in a conspiracy theory. So it is a fascinating moment. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to buy any of these conspiracy theories. I'm certainly not. But again, these are these moments where if you watch the movie now, you could be like, well, damn, I have to reevaluate how I approach all of this in such an interesting way. But And in the scene itself, though, filmically, it's a perfect time. As you said, Steve, Lou and Bill are having, we see their issues at Dave Ferry's apartment. Lou has been the one voice that has constantly been questioning things. Even when they were going on their walk of the security places, it was Bill who was like, are we building the case against him? Well, wake, uh, wake, kick me in the face and wake me up. I'm dreaming. You know, he, He's not always been the person who's been excited to do this because he's a lawyer. And so for him, it's about what can you prove, right? And so um, his approach is different than, say, like an investigator like um, Lou is. And so when we had this interaction with the FBI agent, and they pick a great character actor to play this, a great voice, great look. It felt like something came out of a 1960s FBI show. It was perfect. And his slapping of uh, Bill on the chest to get him to pay attention, I thought was a great moment of interaction between an older mentor and a younger uh, guy. And he breaks him a little bit and tells him all this stuff, you know, and this leads into another element of the conspiracy, which is fascinating because there's so many different points of views and theories on the JFK conspiracy that Oswald was only supposed to wound JFK and they were going to tie him to communism and it was going to be the communists attacking America. So then people would rally around Kennedy going after the Soviet Union and the war machine would begin in earnest and money and all this stuff would start pouring into these people who own these factories that make weapons. And so that was a part of it too, that he was only supposed to be wounded, but someone got aggressive or missed their shot and killed him. And so there's so many different branches to this conspiracy theory around JFK that is just so interesting and fascinating to explore in the objective approach, you know? One thing I think it's important to separate out that can be really hard to separate out Mm. is there is a difference between 
a member or several members of an organization doing a thing mm-hmm. and that organization doing the thing. Right, exactly. You Collectively. Know? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's very possible that there were F- there were dirty FBI. In fact, I'm sure there are were dirty FBI agents. Yeah. I'm sure there were CIA agents. And, and these are all people without necessarily a ton of oversight, particularly when you get into the CIA, right. where one right. side doesn't know what the other side is doing because that's how it works. Yep. You know, and so is it likely that someone random person for some reason felt that it was important to do this thing and created a small conspiracy. Yes. The, when you, but the other thing to me is like the bigger, the group that is supposed to be involved in the thing, the less realistic, the a secret conspiracy becomes, right. You know, it's like, if you have 10 guys, maybe they can keep a secret, but some of the things we're going to hear and particularly where we're going to go next, isn't 10 guys or 50 guys. Mm. It's hundreds of people had to know what was going on because after we have this scene uh, with the FBI agent, we're going to head off to the Washington Mall. Yeah. So, A, everything we are about to see moving forward is fictional. It's based on some stuff. Yeah. But this guy, this character we're going to meet is not a real person. Uh, Jim Garrison heads off to the Lincoln Memorial. Do you know that I really can't go to Washington, D.C. without visiting the Lincoln Memorial? Yeah. I just feel I, I, compelled. I'm surprised. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful memorial, man. I had to go there and I have to silently sit and I have to read all the walls. <laughs> I just, there's not a lot of things that I feel compelled to do, but I do feel compelled to go see Lincoln when I'm in, in DC. I think one of the craziest things about having grown up essentially in DC for like 26 years is that I kind of took for granted that I could just casually go on a Saturday to go Lincoln Memorial, be down there in 35 minutes. You know, it yeah. was never a big deal. And so, um, I didn't always take advantage of that. I went down a few times, but I never, and I was never obsessed with going down all the time. And maybe I should have been, because now that I, I've lived in LA for, or LA, sorry, West Coast for like 20, 23 years, I, I always try to go down and see the monuments whenever I go back in town because of the same reaction you're talking about, Steve. They're awe inspiring to just sit yeah. in that, um, I don't know, historical uh, marker. You know? Yeah. Uh, do you want to know who Oliver Stone first wanted to play the Donald Sutherland role? Oh, I think I know, but tell me. Mr. Marlon Brando. Yes. Yeah. Which, in my opinion, would never have worked. Yeah, probably. Only the biggest reason is Brando could not have remembered this dialogue. No, you're 100% right. They would have had it. So not that there isn't already a lot of voiceover and cuts in this entire sequence, but Sutherland was the better choice. I think it would have gone down differently with Brando. There would have been more flair from Brando, more commentary in his delivery, which, whereas Sutherland is laying it out in, in a, from a place of disbelief. I think Brando would lay it out from a place of conspiracy belief. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And there's a difference. I think there's a difference. Well, and I think too, Sutherland says everything so straight yeah, yeah. It's just, this is the truth. I've already been warned by the agency, Mr. Whoever, so this is another type of threat. I'm not with the agency, Mr. Garrison. And I assume if you've come this far, what I have to say interests you. But I'm not going to name names and tell you who or what I represent, except to say you're close. And it's interesting to have this is the truth as one of the most speculative parts of this whole film. Um, by the way, uh, uh, this is a composite of multiple people. The main person is probably b- based on is a guy named Leroy Fletcher Pouty, 
who was the chief of special ops for the Joint Chiefs under Kennedy. Uh, this guy is an impressive dude, by the way. He was uh, Omar Bradley's personal pilot in World War II. After the army, he became uh, an expert witness. He did a lot of writing. And then he became a writer for a gentleman named L. Ron Hubbard. Hey. And the Scientology magazine, where he became the senior editor what? and was the major advisor to the Church of Scientology for a couple of decades. Whoa. this adds even more to this conspiracy theory that someone so that i mean can we take a moment (laughs) and you know listen this is is america where we're recording and of course some of you listening to us in other in other countries but where we're recording and it is an amendment is freedom of religion right and scientology is considered a religion but if a person who was involved with special ops and psyops was involved in constructing the newsletter and co-creator of Scientology, what does that tell you about the intention and factuality, for lack of a better word, of Scientology? This is crazy. I had no idea. And that makes me even more Uh, adamant that this is a completely constructed out of thin air thing in order for L Ron Hubbard to make money. And so it doesn't mean I doubt anybody's dedication or their devotion to Scientology. That's a separate conversation, but certainly you can make a case that this was all fabricated in order to essentially create a, a a bunch of people who are going to give a lot of money to someone who's in charge of it. I mean, I don't know. And then I had to look up, was Oliver Stone a Scientologist? And it it seems like he flirted with Scientology a little bit, but I don't think he was ever a full-on Scientologist, at least as far as I could tell. Because that I had the same reaction. I was like, whoa, hold on a sec. What exactly does all of this mean? Um, Apparently, meeting Pouty was a profound experience for Oliver Stone. And they spoke quite a bit about all these things. Um, and, and, And he knew, I mean, this character that we're about to meet, this is like the deep throat of this movie. 100%. Yes. Except that we know who Deep Throat was and why he had what access to what files he had. We didn't know it when all the presidents, all the presidents men came out, but we know it now. So this is like a 20 page monologue. Yeah. Which is insane. And Donald Sutherland knew, and this is why I'm just so impressed with all these supporting actors who come on. Donald Sutherland knew he couldn't be iffy on any part of this Hmm. because he knew it had to be delivered quickly and with perfect confidence, right? Yeah. It could, there couldn't be any hesitation. And so, and, and I'll just let you say, if you made the decision, I have to be not just off book, but 100% picture perfect off book for a 20 page monologue. That's all facts and figures. Yeah. How would you feel about that as an actor? I, I would have to have a lot of time with the material and the content. And I would have to go over it with you as a director of what the intention you think is for each section of the monologue and what we're trying to get across with each section of the monologue so that we can limit takes and we can be on the same page yeah. to um, achieve the intention of that monologue. And Sutherland is, I mean, to me, this is a masterclass in acting. And I think it's one of the 20 greatest scenes ever in the history of film. Honestly, in my opinion, 
It is one I go back to all the time, not just for the performance, the editing, the dialogue, the the uh, uh, the script here, the the narration. Costner is totally being outacted in this fucking scene, like completely um, surplus to needs in this scene because you're just so caught up in how Donald is doing it. And it's everything. It's the line delivery. It's the casualness of his physical body. It's the swaying of his trench coat behind him as he's walking up the hill. It's the way Stone shoots the last parts of it where the bench is all the way at the top of the corner left of the screen. And there's this massive patch of grass that you're just focused that you see there on the middle and the right of the screen. It's these little things that he does to bring you into this guy's world. And again, solidify that this is what might've happened. And Stone said this recently, cause he's been doing a tour and doing interviews. And I think it was at the American Cinematheque recently. And he said, this scene was later in the film. After mm. Donald did it, I moved it up in the film to set the stage for the court case. And, mm. and that tells you how great of a scene this is and how great of a performance this is from Donald Sutherland. You know, what's funny is there, there are things, particularly when I was teaching, that mm. I would tell my students are bad ideas and <laughs> why you shouldn't do them. And I'm always fascinated when movies come along that prove me wrong, you know? And right. this is, I mean, if some student came to me, it's like, I'm writing this screenplay and I'm going to have a 20 minute long exposition dump with one guy talking who we never saw before and we never see again, who <laughs> has no, because like, if you think about like basic yeah. things you would think about as an actor of like motivation, what is their, yeah. op, you know, what is their objective? All those things. It's like, well, his objective is just to explain all this stuff. Like yeah. he is, and, and, and really I agree with you. Donald Sutherland is amazing in it, yeah. but it's it's not a monotone exactly in the way he delivers it. He just is like, here are the facts. I'm going to tell you the truth. And because, as you said, of the way that it's edited and Donald Sutherland's performance, I'm riveted from yeah. the beginning to the end. I don't think this movie works without that scene. There's no way this movie succeeds without this scene. It's a good movie. It's not a great movie. This scene... And then later the court scenes really make this film a great movie. And um, everything in this scene is, is, is a big reason why. Well, but this scene is, this is what's weird about this is this is also where we move from, I would say 60, 70% facts, yeah. 30, 40% speculation into 60, 70% speculation and 30% facts. Like right. if we're going to find problems with this movie, which there are reasons to find problems with it. Yeah. This is where the problems start in a lot of ways, because this is where we're really laying out conspiracy theories. But it's also why Stone casts someone like Donald Sutherland, because he, as you said, Steve, so perfectly, he needed someone who could deliver the facts and figures straightforwardly. So although it's a lot of it is speculation, you're taking it as the viewer as truth. Because of the way that Donald Sutherland is delivering it and the confidence that he has in the things that he is saying that immediately make us believe uh, everything he's laying out. I mean, I had moments this time around watching it for the umpteenth time, like where I was like, oh, that's a little far. That's a little far. But overall, I still was caught up with like the how he's weaving together these things that happened around the same time. I also find it interesting that to me, 
if I associate Donald Sutherland with an era of cinema, it is the 70s, yeah. late 60s and 70s counterculture cinema. 100%. And to cast counterculture Donald Sutherland in the establishment black ops guy yeah. is brilliant casting. Yeah, and his son has kind of walked the same path, right? I mean, Keeper mm-hmm. was a rebellious son of a bitch in the 80s and in the 90s and certainly had his problems with alcohol and sure. all these stories. And now he's working on shows where he's like, you know, defending the country in 24 or uh, the uh, the president show that he had for a while. And now this most recent one where he's part of a uh, a secret agency trying to do, protect America from all foreign uh, yeah. uh, invaders. So it's just fascinating how that has kind of mirrored both of their paths, you know. Okay, so let's – we're not going to go through every word in this speech because <laughs> we'll be here a long time. Oh, I thought you were going to simulate the whole thing. All right, fine. Let's go. I, hey, listen. I have it all here. If you would like to hear my dramatic reading of it, I certainly could oblige, <laughs> but I don't think it would be the best use of our time. Fair enough. So, so, But let's go through it kind of piece by piece. The first thing is is he establishes his black ops bona fides. World War II, I was in Romania, Greece, Yugoslavia. I helped evacuate part of the Nazi intelligence apparatus just before the end of the war. We used those guys in the fight against the communists. In Italy, 48, we stole the elections. France, 49, broke the strikes. Overthrew Carino in the Philippines, Arbenz in Guatemala, Mozadig in Iran. We were in Vietnam in 54, Indonesia, 58, Tibet, 59. Got the Dalai Lama out. We were good. Very good. And to be clear, again, we should say this. It's not like the CIA and the, you know, defense system wasn't involved in a whole bunch of shady things in a yeah. whole bunch of places in the sure. world. They were. Um, and then he says, you know, that he's working for the Kennedy plan to get all U.S. personnel out of Vietnam by the end of 1965. Yeah. Again, now we're in the Oliver Stone points. Yeah. Of that really the assassination of Kennedy was about Vietnam. Right. Um, which is not a conspiracy that I personally believe. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I think for me, the, this section of the film goes too far when it attaches Lyndon Johnson. For me personally, I can't allow my mind to go that far. I just don't buy it, you know? And the Vietnam War thing as well, because that is such a combustible element. How could you possibly know what was going to happen or how that was all going to play out. Well, this is where you got to go. Show me the receipts, you know, right. like if you want to connect it to LBJ, you got to go, well, who was contacting LBJ right. that he actually knew that this was going to happen. I don't think that he knew that this was going to happen, but what we do here is that one week after the murder of the Vietnamese president, the end of Saigon and two weeks before the assassination of our president. I got a note saying you want to see me, General. I do indeed. You are going to the South Pole. And that is where he was when Kennedy was killed. Yeah. And then he gets to New Zealand and is immediately reading a paper that has all these details about Oswald and the timing in terms of which time zone they are. There just seems like no way they could have had all that information unless it was all planted. Right. What I have read in trying to follow this up is that this doesn't quite make sense, that the that there was plenty of time for that article to happen in New Zealand. Yeah. And it also goes to, if you're running a conspiracy, it would be stupid to rush more information out than, you know, like part of the idea of the conspiracy is that these people are smart, you know, and that would be dumb. It felt to me as if 
a cover story was being put out, like we would in a black op. Then he goes through the next section is sort of about all of the precautions that should have been taken but weren't taken in Dallas. 100 to 200 agents on the sidewalk without question. We would have arrived days ahead of time, studied the route, checked all the buildings. This also gets really iffy for me because I'm like, look, I don't think that the special operations and the Joint Chiefs are generally in charge of presidential security. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't even know that they would have had that kind of security in 1963 that he's describing. It seems like a massive security operation. Right, right. 100, 200 people on the ground, all of that. Yeah. We'd have had our own snipers covering the area. The minute a window went up, they'd have been on the radio. We'd have been watching the crowd, packages rolled up, newspapers, coat over and up. Never would have let a man open an umbrella along the way. Never would have allowed that limousine to slow down to 10 miles an hour, much less take that unusual curve at Houston and Elm. And of course, as we're hearing him say this, as you mentioned before, we're editing in all that footage. So it's yeah. highlighting everything that he's saying. Which subconsciously makes it feel like he's telling the truth. And of course it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's perfect. And again, all the weird things that happened in that day. We had the entire cabinet on a trip to the Far East. We had one third of a combat division returning from Germany in the air above the United States at the time of the shooting. At 12.34 p.m., the entire telephone system went out in Washington for a solid hour. And on the plane back to Washington, word was radioed from the White House Situations Room to Lyndon Johnson that one individual performed the assassination. Does that sound like a bunch of coincidences to you, Mr. Garrison? This is the heart of the conspiracy. Here's a weird thing. Here's a weird thing. Here's a weird thing. Could those all be coincidences, John? I mean, answer the question. It's not possible, right? It's not possible to answer that question. No, not without receipts, as you said. Yeah, and I think Costner does. You know, listening for a twenty-minute monologue is not easy. And I actually think Costner does a great job. I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the establishment. Is that why? This is where I think the monologue, or the sorry, the scene, is why I said earlier. I think Sutherland is out acting Costner because this is such a simplistic thing for a prosecutor in a major city to say, right? I never thought Kennedy was such a such a danger to the establishment, right? So innocent and wide-eyed. And to me, I think that's where it becomes a it veers into the cheesiness, uh, and where Costner sometimes can veer into the cheesiness with his American every every male type approach to things sometimes. And so for me, any Costner interaction starts to take a little bit away from the monologue, which is why I think Stone was so smart to keep his interaction very limited so that you focused on Donald Sutherland more than anything else. Well, it's a real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the mafia. Keeps them guessing like some kind of parlor game, prevents them from asking the most important question, why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? What's interesting about it is that this feels like a question when in fact it's a conclusion mm-hmm. because by saying oswald ruby cuba the mafia that's just keeping you guessing right um why was kennedy killed because by asking the question in the way he's asking asking it he is saying it can't be the mafia it can't be oswald on his own it can't be cuba because they don't have the power to do what he's talking about yeah. therefore it has to be the government so he's asking questions that only lead to one possible conclusion. When you say who has the power to cover it up, that's only the government. Yeah. yeah. You know, in this way. And this is how Oliver Stone 
was able to get such a big budget for a film like this at that time. Attaching Costner for sure, but the fact that he, and this is the genius of the film, and this is why I think the film endures. This is not a retelling of the conspiracy theory. This is a murder mystery, is what this film is. It belongs in the category with Agatha Christie, you know, it's a murder mystery. And so having Donald Sutherland come in like he does and really put the nail on the head by asking why, which is what's going to lead to you trying to solve the murder. Once you have the why, now you can narrow down the suspects. You can relook at the information through a different prism and it will lead you to a conclusion um, that you couldn't necessarily confidently arrive at before this conversation. So in a way, he's coming in to be that character that kind of unlocks everything and sets the detective in motion to go quicker towards the person that they think committed the murder. You know what I think um, an interesting difference between All the President's Men and Deep Throat and mm. Mr. X and JFK? Deep Throat actually tells us surprisingly little. Yes. He just says things like, follow the money. Right. He says, these guys aren't as smart as you think they are. You know, the, um, and he gives them hints. Mm-hmm. Mr. X gives a 20 minute monologue, <laughs> you know, he is fleshing out the landscape. Yeah. Right. And he does says, he does say at the end, like, you know, you got to do it. I just hope you catch a break, but I have given you all the information. You now have to be the person who takes it, uh, across the goal line. Right. I, I drove us down to the 98. I drove us down to the two yard line. I'm handing you the ball. You got to get across the goal line. Whereas Mark felt the was occasionally, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should yeah. do that. You know, whereas Donald Sutherland is laying everything out. Here's so everything. You have yeah. context. Yeah. And, and now we get into the question of why. And the first reason of why is. Kennedy instructed General Lemnitz, chairman of the Joint General, Chiefs, that from here on forward, president. the Joint Chiefs of Staff would be wholly responsible for all covert paramilitary action in peacetime. This basically ended the reign of the CIA. Again, I don't know. I mean, I know that he fired those people, but how much he was in competing with the CIA in the establishment, I don't really know. And then the next one, which is we're getting back to the very opening and the military industrial complex and Ike, which is Bell helicopters and all the supplies that we're going to make money off of building all these weaponry to take off to Southeast Asia. Yeah, I do love this part of the speech. Not because I think it's true, but because I think it's a great way to make you think, which is, he says, The organizing principle of any society, Mr. Garrison, is for war. The authority of the state over its people resides in its war powers. Do you think that's a true statement? Yes. 100%. I don't know if I think that's that it's about... Certainly, there is a power given to government... But I don't know if the essential power is its war powers. I, I have to keep thinking about that. Is the is your father's essential job to discipline you and make sure you're safe? Uh, that is that is among my father's jobs, definitely. Yes, and to fight anything that could hurt you or damage you. Um. So, do I think my father should fight anything that would hurt me or damage, or would I fight to protect my son? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. But is that my main uh, power? That's where I'm kind of going because, because here's the thing okay. as a parent, how yeah. often am I fighting to protect my child? I don't know. 
It's it's it, I do a whole bunch of stuff as a parent. Yet, I mean, I'm cooking dinner, so I'm providing for him. That's certainly true. I don't know. I had to re- like that's what that's what I mean. Though I think that the um, make statements like that are really interesting. Not necessarily because yeah. I think they're 100 percent the truth, but because they make you go like, well, what is the purpose of right. the state? You know, right. right? Yeah. For me, I, I you know, well, obviously because I was in the military, I do think it is the power to the power to start a war or to defend us in a war is a massive part of the success. Of the I government. agree. Yeah. Is it its sole purpose? No, its sole purpose is to create a, a existence for its people that, that they can feel comfortable living and being feeling like they're protected by the government. And so that's where I take his point and it may not be what his intention is, but that's where I take his point and go to the next place with it. You know, I think, I think the, um, I, I think the preamble to the constitution is a really good guide as I'm mm. thinking about it, you know, uh, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility and provide for the common defense and promote the general welfare provide for the common defense is in the list. Yeah. It's just not the only thing to list. And I'm reminded of, there's the quote, which I think is accurate of during World War II, someone saying to Churchill, we need to cut the money for the arts because we need to spend it on the war. And Churchill said, then what are we fighting for? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, and I also think it's interesting, who is telling us that the primary purpose of all power is derived from war powers? Well, the yeah. military guy. The military, you know? Exactly, the special ops guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course that's what you think. And I, and again, I'm not saying it's not in there. You're right, right, right. Um, it's also, yeah. He just slides in. And Kennedy wanted to end the Cold War in his second term. He wanted to call off the moon race in favor of cooperation with the Soviets. He signed a treaty with the Soviets to ban nuclear testing. He refused to invade Cuba in 1962, and he set out to withdraw from Vietnam. Like, that is as far from a fact. I'm not saying that Kennedy might not have wanted to end the Cold War. I think every president wanted to end the Cold War. Well... It's a fascinating thing because L. Fletcher Powdy was, or Prouty was a uh, technical advisor on JFK. So, and then he wrote a book about his thoughts on JFK and his whole thing. So we may be getting Prouty's point of view on this from his experience in the Kennedy White House, uh, filtered through this monologue that uh, Donald Sutherland is delivering as Mr. X. And he resigned right after the assassination, by the way. So that is a true story about Prouty. So I wonder how much of this is fabricated and how much of this is speculation and how much of this is fact, which is what you brought up a a little while ago. So this wanting to destroy the CIA in the second term, that's most likely speculation from Prouty of what he thought Kennedy was doing based on the things that had been happening or maybe conversations that had had happened, some stuff in the wind, whatever, but maybe that's where he naturally fell to, although it may not be true at all, as you said, Steve. Well, and the thing too is like politicians, people in general, but politicians particularly, say a whole bunch of shit. Yeah, They say lots of stuff. And so is it possible that Prouty's in a room where Kennedy says, in my my next term, I want to make it a real priority of the administration to end this Cold War? Yeah, and he goes, "Oh, it was Kennedy's ascent intention to end the Cold War in his second right. term." Well, that doesn't mean that he had any plan to do so. Yeah, he yeah. just said that he wanted to do that. I like know? this to happen. I would like this to happen. Well, and how many? It's like 
I wish that we did a better job of actually judging our candidates by the promises that they did or did not keep. We don't do this very well at all, but we do know that presidents all make or candidates yeah. all make promises all the time that they don't do. Usually because it's just impossible to do that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um to get in there, you see that you can't do that, you know. And then again we're hitting the amount of money that Vietnam means for all the defense contractors and that they believe he believes that it was obvious to all those people that Kennedy was going to pull us out of Vietnam. As early as 1961, they knew Kennedy was not going to go to war in Southeast Asia. Like Caesar, he is surrounded by enemies and something's underway, but it has no face. Yet everybody in the loop knows. So can we take a moment here, Steve? I want to stress something here that I think is genius about the filmmaking and this, the pacing of this monologue. We, this is the rare monologue that has two crescendos because mm. we have crescendo to this moment on the park bench where he asks the why once he starts in 1960 as, as early as 1961 this is the next build to the final crescendo and he is taking us even quicker through this so we've been on the ride with the roller coaster and now we're getting to that to the to lead us into the last insanely fast part of the roller coaster so the build not only within the monologue but within the direction and the pacing and the editing here is fantastic and it again the rare monologue that is two crescendos in a film it almost never happens but they nail it here so well well and what's so interesting to me is this monologue works in hindsight and yeah. what I mean by that is we know today that Vietnam was a really big deal. Mm -hmm. We know how it tore our country apart. We know how many people were killed. We know how many Vietnamese were killed. We know that it didn't serve the, the needs or we misunderstood some of the things about stopping communism. And yes, to this day, there's still strong debate about whether or not we should have been there. But we have deep, powerful feelings, regardless of what those feelings are, about the war in Vietnam. Yeah, they didn't have those feelings in 1962 or 1963. Vietnam right. was not that important. Right. Like if you had asked, and I don't have a survey in front of me, so I don't have these as facts. But my guess is, if you had done a survey in 62, which is when theoretically these plans to kill Kennedy must have started, yeah. and said how important is Vietnam on the list of things facing the country, I think it would probably be you know at least ten down, if not more. It yeah. was not a huge thing in 1962 and 63, but for us watching the movie today, we go, oh, man, man Vietnam is a big, huge thing. Mm -hmm. You know, so it makes sense someone would kill Kennedy over that. But we didn't know it was going to be a big thing until later. Right. right. 100%. Um, and we hear more about all the money that's going there. And then, and again, this is where we get even more speculative. Now we're in like a meeting of the Joint Chiefs or something where they're bitching about Kennedy. None of which happened. I mean, it might have happened, but we don't know that it happened. And we certainly don't know that they said the things that are in this movie. Yeah, because to me, this is where it becomes like a little bit of a cabal. And the fact oh, yeah. that he put it in black and white. Look, again, this is where if you rewatch the movie and focus on the black and white scenes, when he does black and white, and I don't mean newsreel footage. I mean his black and white with the actors simulating these characters. That is his tip that this is speculation. Every one of the scenes that are black and white is speculation. So seeing them sitting around this, I mean, what looks to be like the office in a White House or in the Pentagon yeah. of all these people, and they're all just, they all just hate Kennedy, you know? And 
because this is all in 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 Stone's mind. In Stone's mind, Kennedy, who like let's be real, is the rich, wealthy son of a bootlegger who worked with the mob to establish his business. He is seen as this liberal idealist who has no idea about how to run the government or run the country. Kennedy was ruthless. Kennedy, Jack, John Kennedy, when you study John Kennedy, he was very clear and ruthless and understood how to work within the system to make change. And so this idea that Stone is pushing that these old school military guys hated this, you know, preppy kid coming in right out of college in their minds or whatever. He is creating the um, narrative that there were battles. We don't know that these military guys, at least in Stone's point of view, actually respected Kennedy and could have conversations with him about the military stuff. Yes, the Bay of Pigs was a fuck up, you know, just like uh, Carter with the um, Iran hostages thing and the Iran-Contra thing was also a bit of a fuck-up on Reagan's part as well, you can honestly. So presidency, presidents fuck up, and it happens. But this idea that because the Bay of Pigs didn't go well, that all of a sudden the entire military establishment would come after him and not understand that, I think is, is a fabricated thing in uh, Stone's point of view. But we see it playing out as he's talking about Caesar. like He's laying the groundwork X's for how we should see this which is poor Kennedy was essentially killed like Caesar was in the Senate. It's so, first of all, I think it would be really interesting to actually go through the movie and look at what film stock was being used Mm. and how, and how accurate or truthful that particular scene is. I think it's all over the place. I think that, I think the use of black and white in this definitely makes it feel like the newsreel footage, you know, it feels, it makes it feel really real. And then, and of course, the way he says that this happened, it's all beautifully written. He says, Everything is cellularized. No one has said he must die. There's been no vote, nothing's on paper. There's no one to blame. It's as old as the crucifixion, a military firing squad. Five bullets, one blank, no one's guilty because everyone in the power structure who knows anything has a plausible deniability. There are no compromising connections except at the most secret point. The use of the word crucifixion in there, I think, is so powerful in framing how we're supposed to feel about what happened. Well, and again, what we talked about in the last episode, the Easter Sunday stuff, that is, you know, he's picking the moments to make those uh, allusions. The perpetrators must be on the winning side and never subject to prosecution for anything by anyone. That is a coup d'etat. A coup d'etat is a big thing to say. Proudy believe this, but yes, yes. Go ahead. Yeah. well, well, and it's also it's also where the distance between the theory of what happened that were being put forth, the distance between that and David Ferry and Clay Shaw seems so far. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, how did we get to those Joint State Chiefs and General Y right. to Clay Shaw and Guy Bannister? You know? Yeah. Like, do you really think Kennedy was? took like within three years, essentially, Steve, like within three years, he alienated the military establishment to this point more than any other president had ever alienated the military establishment. That's madness. Absolute madness to think. It doesn't make sense. Well, and part of it to me is it is the, the liberal post-assassination reconstruction and deification of John F. Kennedy. Right. As opposed to who he really was. 
you know. Um, well, I mean, I think this is a long time ago, so I don't don't trust my facts on this because I'm not 100% sure. But my memory yeah. is that when Reagan was president and he brought up defense budgets so much that it was the biggest rise in, def in, in defense yeah. budgets since Kennedy. Right. Kennedy had raised the budgets on the defenses. That's my memory. And yep. so this whole notion that he was opposed to that, I don't know that there's evidence for that. No, no. but it's all, it's all fabricated narrative. Like if you look at the amount of money Demo democratic presidents have spent on defense it dwarfs the republican presidents and, and but the but the narrative is that democrats are soft on the military or you know don't care about the military it's not true you know so yeah but these are narratives that are bumped out consistently lyndon johnson signs national security memo 273 which essentially reverses kennedy's new withdrawal policy and gives a green light to covert action against north vietnam which provoked the gulf of tonkin incident just get me elected I'll give you a damn war. Well, and here's where I have such problems, Steve, with this <laughs> with this monologue. The, the, again, the monologue is, to me, one of the 10 greatest scenes in film history ever. And I, I don't say that lightly. But the Lyndon Johnson stuff is where it goes too far. Because first of all, I'll be goddamn that Lyndon would bend the knee to the military establishment. He would absolutely not. He would make them bend the knee to him. There's no way he would come in like... You know, you get get me what is it? Get me the presidency, and I'll give you your war. Bullshit, bullshit. You know, Lyndon Johnson, and this is again, as you said, this is Oliver Stone as a baby boomer deifying Kennedy and and villainizing LBJ, which was the popular narrative with a lot of baby boomers who were liberals, and it's bullshit. LBJ was a hard ass. He was a, a tough guy. He got into people's faces, but he believed in liberal causes. And so this idea that he would just somehow be, um, uh, how can I say, be submissive to the military is, out of, is, is ridiculous. Ridiculous. He would call them all to task, you know? So, Yeah, he, he was a guy, he certainly knew how to make deals for power. That was his mm -hmm. whole thing. Mm -hmm. But he didn't kowtow to people like, like they're showing. Yeah. I don't, I can't. I can't believe it. they killed him because he wanted to change things. You just had a strong reaction to that line. Every line of his is so fucking cheesy. It just kills the, you know, it comes close to killing the monologue because he is a defense attorney in a major city. For him to speak like a 10-year-old or 15-year-old teenager discovering that the world is, is, is crooked at times, I just find it to be so disingenuous. You know, I wish they'd written him better lines. Because it sounds so idealistic and wide-eyed, and it doesn't fit with how he's been through the whole movie, you know? Well, yeah. And it, that's something Sissy Spacek would react, like his wife would react like this. And that's where I think the difference is for me, you know? Well, and I think the difference, it's interesting that you say the Sissy Spacek thing, because to me, again, it goes to line reading, mm. is if, if that line was Sissy Spacek's line, it would be, that's not possible, those I can't believe that someone would kill him. That's not that's that would be the line reading, as opposed to what he's doing, which is again the deification of JFK. Is he's saying right? He was our savior, yes, and he wanted to save the country, and that is why he was killed. That is the way Costner's performance plays into this scene. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is Stone, which putting is Stone. his yeah. points of view through Garrison's mouth and Costner's performance, um, and that's. That frustrates me because it's not consistent character-wise 
with how Garrison would have reacted to this information, you know? Um, one of the things I was going to say later, but I just cur- made a connection to me right now, which is that as people are criticizing this film, Stone basically goes, I don't care. This is my godfather. That's right. what he said about this film. Right. And suddenly I'm, I'm just reading in my notes uh, Donald Sutherland's next line, and it made me think of the godfather. Kings are killed, Mr. Garrison. Politics is power. Nothing more. And I suddenly went to... You know how naive you sound. Why? Senators and presidents don't have men killed. Who's being naive, Kay? <laughs> Which frames this perfectly. I think that w- that works again to make this monologue even more powerful. And then he says... Oh, don't take my word for it. Don't believe me. Do your own work, your own thinking. Which is, do your own research. Right. But the thing about do your own research, and all of us should do our own research. We sure. should do that. But if you just do your own research with the framing that you've been presented, you're only going to find things that confirm the idea that was framed for you. Yep. The first do your own research you should do is how is the thing that I was told not true? Yeah. That should be your first piece of research. Uh If you feel really strongly like this all clicks and makes sense with my worldview, your first thought should be, how would I disprove that? Uh, but that's you, not generally how humans work. <laughs> it's true, and it should be. You're right, because if you believe what you, if you, how can I say this? If you really believe what you believe, then you shouldn't be afraid to challenge it. It's as simple as that, because that will make you even more adamant to believe what you believe. If you can, if you can negotiate your way out of the challenge in terms of like, okay, this is possible, this is possible, but this and this and this. Okay, cool. All right, I've. I've challenged it. It feels correct to me. So it's it's a it's a, a way of solidifying your belief on a certain point of view or a certain issue. And I, and I think that's essential, as you said, Steve. You should always look to disprove what you believe, um, so that you will believe it even harder if it can survive the disproval. I uh, I have been told that there is something that uh, people who know my family call the Morris voice, <laughs> which tends to speak with a lot of authority. Yes. Uh, certainly my sister and my dad had this particular tone and I have it too, which is why, and you've heard me do it many times. I really try to say, I'm not sure about this, or I am sure, you know, it's like, I'm 70% sure of this, or I'm 50% sure of this. Like, I think it's really important to not just have everyone take what you say with a grain of salt, but add your own grains of salt. You know, if you're not, and particularly watching this movie going, what am I sure of here? And what is, what is speculation? It's really important. Testify. Me? Testify. <laughs> no chance in hell. No, I'd be arrested and gagged, maybe sent to an institution, maybe worse, you too. They'd have killed you now, but you had too much light on you. Make arrests, stir the shitstorm. Hope to reach a point of critical mass that'll start a chain reaction of people coming forward. Then the government will crack. Remember, fundamentally, people are suckers for the truth. And the truth is on your side, Bubba. Why do you think he calls him Bubba? I love I, I love it. I don't know, but I love it. Because you know, and because like we've had other um, shall we say, outdated terminology used in the movie that worked. Mm-hmm. But the way he delivers Bubba here is great. Because it is not dismissive, it's almost friendly. Mm-hmm. but with the proper amount of distance between them, you know? And I love that. And even, and, and like I said, he, and he says here, his final line, which is a, a line to support him is I hope, I just hope you catch a break and then walks off. 
and the speed at which he's out of there, yeah, I think is key to the scene. Yes. Is no goodbyes. There's no like, do you have any other questions? It's, I just hope you catch a break. And he's yeah. gone. I think he sees this as a Shakespearean thing, right? Oh, yeah. Because the country is essentially Denmark, and he is Hamlet. And this is the Hamlet's ghost. This is his father's ghost come to visit him to give him the information of who's really, who really is involved in the death of right. your, your father or your country. And that is, uh, you know, Claudius and essentially the CIA, the FBI and, and uh, Clay Shaw and all those people are Claudius. Well, and of course the metaphor you're using is the metaphor that Garrison is going to use later on in the trial of right. the idea of the dead King and right. who's going to fight for the dead King. Right. Uh, we're at Arlington Cemetery, and Garrison is looking over the eternal flame at JFK's grave, and of course has the African American father and son next to him, and he sits there and he thinks. And then, and I love, you know, I've said it many times on the Cinephiles. I love the question answered in the cut, which is, we're left with, what are you going to do? You see him thinking about what he's going to do, and then we cut to Mr. Shaw. Sir, you're under arrest. You're charged with conspiracy and entering into an agreement with other persons for the specific purpose of committing the crime of murder of President John F. Kennedy. The shocked look on Tommy Lee Jones's face is great. <laughs> and we're in the police station and they're questioning him. And the key moment is as they're asking just the normal questions, they ask him. Ever use any aliases? Claire Burton. And that is true. That, I mm. believe that the, he did actually on the record state that he had used the Clay Burton uh, alias. The, we have kind of dueling press conferences because the world has gone nuts at this news. And Jim Garrison is at a press conference. Mr. Shaw was included in our investigation. And there was no connection found at all. And why, if they did, is his name not mentioned once in the entire 26 volumes of the Warren Report, even if it is to clear his name. And then we cut to Earl Warren, which is actually Jim Garrison. Mm -hmm. I know of no fact which would refute the commission's conclusion that Lee Oswald was the lone killer. It's pretty weird that the chief justice of the Supreme Court has now made a statement interfering essentially with my case. Usually things go up to the Supreme Court after appeal. They don't start with statements from the Supreme Court, you know, and the press is putting pressure on Garrison. And why are you destroying this person's life? And he on his way out says, it's what's so funny a few years ago we did untouchables yeah which i think there's a real parallel with him as you know elliot ness mm -hmm. as the and, and the uh what is this line he's like let's go do some good or something yeah let's do good let's go do let's, some good yeah um i that just the, the, this reminds me of that <laughs> yeah and oh i meant to mention this earlier in the scene with uh david ferry and pesci when he's um losing it he says these people are untouchable. And then it says it twice in the scene. Mm. So I think that was a little bit of a, yeah. a nod to Costner. But yeah, I love this line. Let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Such a great line and great scene. I, th I remember that being like the button in the trailer. Yeah. Uh, and the way it's framed is perfect. It's almost uh, Greek or Romanesque, the way it's portrayed with him just a few steps above, pointing down. You can almost see the toga on Costner pointing down at the reporters there who would question this and are trying to um, uh, undercut him with these questions. 
about it all, you know. And, and it's a grand, it's grandstanding for sure. But sure, that one actually works for me as opposed to like, oh my god, I can't believe the country lied to me, you know. You know, you know, it's weird just thinking about uh, Untouchables, mm. which is just like '87, maybe I think. Yes, yeah, few so. years earlier in this. Um, is that in that movie? Costner and the FBI are the crusading do-gooders. Sure. Co- you know, Elliot Ness is the uncorruptible, yeah. honest man. That is the dy- dynamics of the movie. And the, is then becomes like, well, how much will he get his hands dirty in order to bring down Capone? Right. And, and by this point, the FBI is the problem. The FBI right. is yeah. conspiring to kill the presidency and he's yeah. fighting against them, which is sort and again, it goes sort of to the World pre-World War II, World War II philosophy of our government might be messed up in a lot of ways, but they are essentially good and we can trust them. Yeah. And then to the 60s philosophy of you can't trust the, the, the government is conspiring against us, which I think is also connected, which again is why it's so interesting as we jump back and forth on political sides of Ronald Reagan saying whatever the, the most scariest words in the English language, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. You know? Yeah. Well, even... um. Even nowadays, you know, there's one side of the political aisle that wants to uh, take away funding for the CIA, essentially break them up to take away funding from the FBI. And what is uh, Donald Sutherland as, as uh, Mr. X say to Costner that um, Kennedy was going to essentially just, you know, end the CIA, end the Cold War, defund the CIA um, and make them irrelevant. Right. And so that was okay through a liberal point of view in the early nineties and certainly with the conspiracy in the sixties, seventies and eighties. But now the idea of defunding the CIA or the FBI is like controversial and no on the left, right? No, we don't want to do that. And so it's, it's a fascinating twist of things as we progress through this life, how, as you were pointing out, Steve, how it can be in one time period of an approach to the government in one way in another time period, approach the government a completely different way yet we both in, yet we enjoy those interpretations within those films and the constructs of those films well i think mostly we pick whatever interpretation suits our worldview and goals at the moment you know like in the the i mean because you look at after september 11th and the department of homeland security and all the you know snowden revelations of they're tapping our phones and they're tapping all of our that's all true i mean it's like and at that point it was still the liberals were like we got to defund nsa and cia they're you know messing with our privacy yeah and now it's like how dare you say negative things about the fbi they're great guys yeah yeah as opposed to having a view of the world that's complex and going yeah this is complicated there are problems with these institutions most large institutions have problems. Right. Exactly. Yes. Because they're unwielding. Yeah. And they're so big. Yeah. The case of Jim Garrison. Honey, this is After all several weeks you. of investigation in New Orleans, a team of reporters has learned that District Attorney Jim Garrison and his staff have intimidated, bribed, and even drugged witnesses in their attempt to prove a conspiracy involving New Orleans businessman Clay Shaw in the murder of John F. Kennedy. This absolutely confirms, you know, what uh, Ferry was saying earlier is that this thing is too big for you, man. They're going to come after you. They're going to try to bury you. And certainly we see that here, that uh, they've essentially bought off these reporters to throw doubt on the investigation and doubt on Garrison's objectives, you know. And this is this leads to what, a lot of people feel who don't buy these conspiracy theories and don't buy Garrison 
criticize Garrison for. You know, the big criticism of him is that he was a, a spotlight chaser, a glory hound, all these things, um, which is why you can't trust what he's saying. You can't trust his investigation. So the people who've sought to denigrate him, they are put in a villainous, villainous light by the movie in sequences like this. So it's an interesting thing. I love the moment where he turns to Liz and says, Well, I wouldn't worry about it, Liz. There's only about 20, 30 million Here's people Mr. watching Garrison this tonight. And then we cut to more news footage and we have reached the assassination of Martin Luther King. Yeah. And uh, man, I, you know, we've talked about the difficulty of the current, of the era we're living in. And I, and I think it is difficult. Yeah. Can you imagine if added to all those things that went on, there were multiple assassinations of prominent political figures? I can't even imagine living through the 60s and not thinking that there wasn't. I mean, how could you not? Yeah. I, it's mind-blowing to me that you would think these were all just random fucking coincidences. And as they're reacting to the death of Martin Luther King Jr., there's a phone call, and the daughter answers it. Hello, is this Jim Garrison's daughter? Yes. Virginia, you're a lucky little girl. Your daddy's entered you in a beauty contest. Would you like to be in a beauty contest? And she's just talking, and he's asking her questions, and then mom gets on the phone. And this, I don't believe this, is that Jim's like, oh, it's just some crack. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, <laughs> no, you would be worried about that. That is scary as hell, yeah. some guy talking to your daughter about this. That, that this is the, one of the main reactions of this movie. I don't buy. Right. Jim Garrison minimizes this, and he would not. This yeah. is a big deal. Inconsistency. A man just called. He wanted to know everything: her height, her weight, Honey, where some she. Some crackpot. Martin Luther King was killed in Memphis. Honey, your daughter's today. life's just been threatened. Uh, and now this fight is just going to escalate. Yeah, this is a horrific fight. God damn it! I if I said I'll spend you. more time with him, I'll spend more time with him. All right, now, I cannot fight you and the whole world, too, Liz. I'm not fighting you. I'm trying to reach you. You've changed. Well, of course I've changed. My eyes have opened. And once they're open, believe me, what used to look normal seems insane. And now, King, don't you think, don't you think this has something to do with that? Can't you see? I don't want to see, goddammit. I'm tired. And again, this is the world of the conspiracy theory, is once things have been framed in a certain way, it's not possible that Martin Luther King could be killed without being connected to the same conspiracy theory. Right. Everything is through the prism, through that prism. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I don't think, I don't know as much about the King assassination, but I don't think it's connected to this in any way. You know, there, there are plenty of people that wanted King dead that aren't necessarily the military industrial complex. Mm. Although they wanted, wanted, I mean, like he, he was opposed to the war in Vietnam. That's true. True. I just don't think he cared weight enough to stop people from, I mean, they should, yeah. they would have killed Ali. Do you know what I'm saying? If you were yeah. going to go down, down that route, who was equally popular, if not slightly more popular than MOK around this time. So, um, and his was a much more public denigration of the serving in Vietnam you know, yeah. for the black community. So it's, uh, I, 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 yeah, I, the, the MLK one has a lot of tentacles to it. So does so does Malcolm X's, which is three years right. earlier in '65, and a number of civil rights leaders who were killed throughout this time in the '60s. You know, there's more to explore here, and there's one right. There's a new film out now with Coleman Domingo Rustin, which I'm looking forward to seeing and exploring that and seeing what's involved in that as well. So yeah, um, yeah, I don't think I, I connected to the military industrial complex. Do I connect it to the FBI and J Edgar Hoover? Possibly could be, but yeah, I'm not. 
this is a different movie. That's a different movie. But again, it goes just to the, once you see the world a certain way, things yeah. pop out. You know, there's that weird thing of, you've never heard this word before. You hear it for the first time, learn its definition, and then you hear it five more times in the next few months. You know, every the things, new things that you learn change the way we see everything else. And then here's the critical shift, which is that he thought she was on his side. Yeah. yeah. And then she says, You're ruining this man Shaw's life. You're attacking him because he's a homosexual. That's not why I'm attacking him. Did you ever for once stop to consider what he was feeling? And when she says that, it's not just that she's not supporting him. It's that she thinks his, this whole thing is bullshit. By saying you're attacking him because he's homosexual, she is saying all of this is crap. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Costner has a great reaction. He says, You don't believe me? I, hmm? I don't know. All this time, you never believe me. I just want to raise our children and live a normal life. I want my life back. And Costner loses it. So do I, goddammit. I had a life too, you know. But you just can't bury your head in the sand like some goddamn ostrich, Liz. It's not about our well-being, all right? It's not about our two cars and our TVs and your kitchen. It's about our kids growing up and our shit all lies, and I'm angry about it. And my life is fucked because of it. And if you could see it that way, Liz, you see that your life is fucked too. What do you think about that monologue? Uh, you know, Garrison comes off as a pretty insensitive guy here and, and um, uh, brutal. Just absolutely brutal because he's arguing that she won't see things through his eyes while he resists seeing things through her eyes, right? He's saying, you need to, you need to see that the world is falling apart just like I do. And the whole time she's saying, you need to see what this obsession is doing to this family. And he is rationalizing his mistreatment of his family because he thinks what he's doing is of a bigger purpose for the bigger picture. And she's trying to get him to see like, no, you've changed. She said, you've changed. And again, I go back to what I said earlier, how many conversations like this have happened in people's households over the last five to eight years? I'm sure probably a lot. And so this is an interesting scene to see now through that prism of 2023. And the stories that I've read of people who have had to find a way to live with their significant other or their family member who believes conspiracy theories. And so it's a fascinating scene because again, I think Sissy Spacek is right. I think she's right to call him out on all the things he's doing. And I think he's using easy rationalization to get out of it. And which leads to that horrible moment on the stairs, which I think is the, like the worst thing you can say. But again, this is where I think the film falls apart a little bit is the storyline because what we're getting to, the resolution of it all, is a very male resolution, mm. you know, which we'll get to when we get to it. I am. Um, it, it's funny because it really goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about how how much is it okay to just go? I just want to live my life, and yeah, how yeah. much is it? You know, the the warriors, you know, the barbarians are at the gate, and we have to fight with everything we have to protect our lives. Yeah, and and, and the thing about it. There's in almost every statistical way, and this comes from um, Stephen Pinker's book, I think it's The Better of Angels of Our Nature, but like basically humans, we're all way better off now than we have ever been in the history of humanity. A hundred percent. 
in almost every, in terms of how many people are starving, how many people die by violence, how, you know, like civil rights and all these things, we are way better off. And yet it feels like what Jim Garrison says, my life is fucked. Our lives are fucked and you need to see that your life is fucked. And it's like, no, Liz's life is not fucked. They have a nice middle, upper middle class lifestyle. She's got her kids. She's got her family. She's, she's not fucked. Now, Jim Garrison's view of the world is that a, you know, a cabal has taken over the United States government in order to fight more wars around the world. And we were losing all our freedom. So that's why he sees that. But like the, this is this weird thing we're in. It's like, and and it goes to, and I know it's not reality, but it's like, if we could just fucking get along, we have everything we need on the planet. We'd have to be fine. There's no reason for all of the terrible things that are happening, except for people who think they're fucked. And when you think you're fucked and the world is falling apart, then you have to fight against the people that are fucking you, you know? Or you perceive to be fucking you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and that's why I thought one of the most poignant things coming out of the Matrix was that scene, maybe not the whole scene, because the scene can get a little tedious, but the scene where uh, the creator is revealing to uh, Neo that they tried to, oh no, was it was it the creator or was it uh, Agent Smith? Whoever is revealing that they tried to create a matrix for humanity where everyone was happy and humans never bought it. Humans never uh, accepted right. it. They rejected it outright as as false. As as they constantly questioned that this was real. But once we introduced conflict, then they were able to accept the matrix, right? And so I think this is true. I think human beings cannot be cannot essentially be happy. They can't. They must always because it's such an unfair world that we've been taught to believe is an unfair world. Rather that if we start to see any goodness, a majority of people worry about, in my opinion, worry about when's the other shoe going to drop. And I think the work week is the biggest current example of that. And by that, I mean, there are people who are adamant that we need to keep the nine to five, five days a week work week. This is how we've always done it. This is America. This is production. You must work hard. If you do a four-day work week that is five to six hours, then that's somehow lazy. Yet all studies, or majority of studies, like a lot of studies, show that the eight, the forty-hour work week and the eight-hour work day does not lead to more pro- productivity when you compare it to a four-day work week and a six-hour work day. Hmm. And so this is what's the battle now: is this idea of you know, um, a way of looking at things versus the actual way of looking at things. I must suffer in order to achieve this. If I don't suffer during work, I don't feel like I'm doing work. Therefore, my money, I don't feel comfortable with the money I'm making. I don't feel comfortable with the life I'm living. I shouldn't be this happy. So this is a thing that um, is so ingrained and baked into our culture and i can only speak as an american because that's the only culture i've grown up in but it is really needy uh baked into our culture so deep it's interesting that you brought up the matrix because i i I, that line has always struck me and it only just now occurred to me not the problem with the line because of course it's a great moment where he Mm -hmm. says hey we tried to make everything perfect and you guys wouldn't accept it but the reality i think is that 
humans just can't accept perfect, even if it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. You know, is that I am sure that you've known people who, from your perspective, have everything that they could possibly need. Yeah. And are still complaining. You know, yes, 100%. It, it, you could be wealthy, be able to do and buy whatever you want and still be a miserable fucking person. Yeah. Because that is the human nature. Like, we can't just look at, hey, everything's cool right now. Right. I'm Everything's cool. I'll just be happy. We actually don't work that way. Right. As, as soon as we get one thing that we wanted to make us happy, we're forgetting about that thing and we want the next thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and of course, in this moment, things get real bad because she says, she doesn't threaten to leave him. She says, I am leaving you and I'm taking the children. You don't want to support me. Fine. I can understand that. But don't go start making threats about taking the children. I'm not making any threats. I'm leaving don't you. Don't threats. I'm go on then. Fine. Get out. It's funny too, because it's actually just realized again, another Godfather reference, because this is Godfather 2. And this apparently is based on a fight that Oliver Stone had with his wife. I believe over his obsession with the Kennedy assassination <laughs> this movie. I am. Go hide somewhere. Join the rest of them. They'll tell you I'm crazy. You get plenty of people to tell you I'm crazy. You won't have any problems fill out your divorce papers on me. It's interesting when Costner gets emotional. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he he's he's mostly just a very straight ahead sort of actor. Mm -hmm. But I do like when he gets that little break in his voice. You know, the little quiver. Yeah. yeah. And then she goes upstairs, and now he's alone with the kids. Are we going away, Daddy? I don't know, Jasper. Because of Kennedy? Are the same people going to kill us, Papa? That's a fucked up thing to hear your kids say. Yeah. And they go and they sit outside. And again, this is a conversation that Oliver Stone had with his son. And it is his son playing this part. So this is something he had been through with his dad when he and his mom had fought. There's nothing wrong with feeling a little scared, Jasper. Telling the truth can be a scary thing sometimes. Which I think is great fatherly advice. Right. And then the way he says this next part, I don't think is great fatherly advice. <laughs> scared President Kennedy, and he was a brave man. But if you let yourself be too scared, then you let the bad guys take over the country, don't you? And I'm like, uh, President Kennedy got killed. <laughs> So telling your kid that Kennedy was scared but brave is not actually a way to reassure him. <laughs> we are back at the office and we've heard about more roadblocks put up by the FBI and the CIA uh, they, and, and all sorts of things that should never happen, that they've never had problems, you know, subpoenaing things or getting evidence. And this time they do. And Bill and Lou start arguing. You keep saying, see, you keep saying that. You're not digging. I keep saying what? You're not digging. I'm not digging. digging. Not you, want to, you do my job? You do my job, I'll do your job. And then we get into, and this is what you brought earlier, which is that Oswald made a visit to the FBI and brought a note, and the note was torn up. I was just speculation, people, but what if the note was describing the assassination attempt on JFK? And they all seem kind of dubious about this claim. Yeah. And Jim says... Come on, people, think. That's the only reason to destroy it. And it's like, so Oswald, we have a thing that he might have gone to the FBI building, he might have had a note, and the note might have been destroyed, and therefore, I mean, he could have wrote, where's the bathroom? Yeah. You know, like, I mean. Stop we, interrogating my wife when I'm not around. Exactly. But no, it's got to be, I'm just going to write out the details of the Kennedy assassination. And then we get into this other thing, which is that there was a telex warning of a Kennedy assassination. 
and it went around to every FBI office and then it was destroyed. Um, it's, it's funny how we only hear about these telexes after something happens, right? Because like, there's probably a million telexes that have exactly. gone warning of something that didn't come true. Like the nine 11 mm-hmm. briefing with Condoleezza Rice that became a big deal. Like, I'm sure there are probably 150 other briefings where they spoke about imminent attacks that never came true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, in the same, we just had it on October 7th in Israel, like that, that there were some right. warnings of things that were about to happen. It's hard. Again, this goes to the thing we've been talking this whole time. It's hard to know when it's all hands on deck time that this is really going to happen and we have to fight against it or when this is just another rumor or another maybe and we can't put all our resources behind it. Yeah, 100%. I have a hunch that from the get go, Oswald had infiltrated this group probably Cubans, right-wing extremists. He was told to be at the book depository that day by his handlers to either prevent the assassination or to take part in it. I mean, they could have told him anything. Either they were going to close down the plotters that day or they were going to simulate an attack on Kennedy to whip up public opinion so that Kennedy would have to reverse his policies on communism. That is all Oliver Stone. That is not a Jim, that's not from Jim Garrison's book. That's all his theorizing. You tell me how the hell you gonna keep a conspiracy going on between the mob, the CIA, the FBI, and Army Intelligence, and who the hell knows what else, when you know for a fact you can't keep a secret in this room between 12 people. I think Bill makes a damn good point. Right, and and I, and I wanna make this clear. This is why I don't think this film, and when people denigrate this film, we go, oh, this is a, a film that uh, just pushes irresponsible conspiracy theories. Consistently, throughout the whole film, there is a strong presence countering Garrison's pursuit of all of this stuff and calling him out. If it isn't his wife, it's um, Bill. And Bill is doing this consistently. And here is his, and everything Bill lays out here, he is right. And I do like that Costner or Garrison defends him after he storms out and which the thing was a loop, but like, I don't want to jump ahead, but just saying that. And I, I love that he, here is a Lil bill rather laying out all the reasons where Garrison is going off on speculation rather than fact. And remember again, bill is a lawyer, but so is Garrison. So it's even more shocking that Garrison is willing to go into a court case with all this speculation, you know? It's funny. I, I, I agree with the point that Bill makes the counter point, mm. but to me, the weight of the movie is so against him because what Bill doesn't have that the rest of the speculation does have is Oliver Stone intercutting footage, showing the things that we don't know that happened and showing them as if they happened, mm. you know, like it'd be interesting to walk away. I think on your fourth or fifth viewing of the movie, and you've watched this a lot, that Bill speech really comes out. Yeah. But does it come out? the first time you watch the movie or does it just seem that Bill's obviously wrong, you know, or that, that Bill just doesn't, doesn't go along. doesn't want to see it's yeah. more, maybe more uh, like that. No, well, Bill just doesn't want to see like it's there. He just doesn't yeah. want to see it. It's like willful blindness. Well, it's like Liz, you know, open your eyes. And by, yeah. by the way, I should say Lou is an actual character that was in the office. Bill is kind of a composite. There wasn't a person like Bill gotcha. and certainly wasn't one that turned on them. Right. Yeah. We should be investigating our mafia leads here in New Orleans. Now, I can buy that a hell of a lot easier than I can the government. Ruby is all mob, knows Oswald, sets him up. Hoffa, Traficante, Marcellus, they hire some guns to do Kennedy. And uh, the government doesn't want to open up a whole can of worms there because it used the mob to try to get to Castro. 
So as I said, the book that I read really does blame the mob. Yeah. And it's Carlo Marcello, who is the person who it pegs as the mastermind, who confessed to planning the Kennedy assassination to his cellmate in 1985. <laughs> wow. Interesting. Yeah. Now, again, does that mean that he planned it? Right. You know, or was he just an old man, you know, spending the rest of his life in jail that said, you know, wanted to get some credit for something? I don't doubt the involvement, Bill, but at a lower level. Oh, come on. Could the mob change the parade route, Bill? Or eliminate the protection for the president? Could the mob send Oswald to Russia and get him back? Could the mob get the FBI, the CIA, and the Dallas police to make a mess of the investigation? I mean, could the mob get the Warren Commission appointed to cover it up? I think these are good points. Yes. That is assuming that all of those groups were working together to do this. Yeah. If all those groups were working together to do this, then no, the mob couldn't have done it. This was a military-style ambush from start to finish. This was a coup d'etat with Lyndon Johnson waiting in the wings. Oh, okay, so now you're saying Lyndon Johnson was involved? Ooh, president of murderer balls? You ever read your Shakespeare, Bill? Julius Caesar? Brutus and Cassius, they too are honorable men. Who killed Caesar? 10, 12 senators. All it takes is one Judas, Bill. I find the word Judas very interesting there because that's what Bill is going to be. Well, that's what he... That's what he's essentially implying, yeah. This is Louisiana, Chief. I mean, how the hell do you know who your daddy is? Because your mama told you so. You are way out there taking a crap to win, boss. And I, for one, am not going along on this one. And he storms out. And then what's so interesting is Lou basically piles on Bill. Chief, I've had my doubts all along about Bill. Well, we need him back. And Lou is again saying, look, I've seen Bill copying files. He's leaving here late at night. I don't trust him. You two didn't hear what I said. Now, I said I will not tolerate infighting among the staff. I'm afraid I cannot work with Bill Broussard anymore. Are you giving me an ultimatum, Lou? What? I think this is a fascinating moment because I think it's very clear to me that Lou and Bill are the two top people working for Jim Garrison, yeah, and that and that Lou is the closest relationship in the office. Wouldn't you say that? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. He's been with him with every, through, through a lot of these scenes. Are you giving me an ultimatum? Well, if that's what you want to call it. No, I never thought it'd come to this. I guess I am. Well, I will not have any damn ultimatums put to me, Lou. I'll accept your resignation. Well, you sure got it. And then I love the parting blow. You are one stubborn son of a bitch. And you're making a hell of a mistake. And he heads out. Yeah. By the way, this did not happen. Lou did not quit. But there were other staff members <laughs> who did quit. Lou stuck around. The, yeah. But of course, this is Coster trying to promote this uh, this stuff. Or, or I mean, Stone trying to promote this stuff in, in, in creating conflict right before we're about to get to the um, court case. And then we cut to what I think is the most useless edition from the director's cut, which is we're on a TV show. This is based on Garrison's appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, except that he's on a TV show with John LaRiquette, who's yeah. great casting. It's not a bad scene. I just don't think you need it. I agree. And I do like the analogy. If we'd learned on November 22nd, 1963, that the premier of Russia had been shot from a Moscow office building by a lonely capitalist sympathizer who himself was then liquidated by a patriotic Muscovite within 48 hours while surrounded by armed police, 
I think it would be pretty apparent to any free-thinking person that a coup d'etat and a transfer of power had just taken place in the Soviet Union. But needless to say, Jim gets shut down. And then again, I find uh, this sequence all weird, which is he's at the airport and Bill runs up to basically warn him his life is in danger. And then he kind of shuts Bill down. And I don't know. I don't even really understand the scene. It's very odd to me. It doesn't quite fit right. Yeah, I agree. And then the next sequence is he's in the in the stall at the airport. And I'm not quite sure what happened to Bill or why he's not around. And then something spooks him and he, he's, he kind of runs out and has a little altercation with some cops. And, and, you know, the whole sense of it is, I think, I really think this is the garage scene in all the president's men Mm. where deep throat says you're not safe. And we hear all the echoing footsteps and Robert Redford thinks he's being chased. Yeah. And that scene is way scarier and way more effective than this is. And I think this was correct to not be in the theatrical cut of the movie. I don't think it all works. I agree. It's later that night. We're back home. Liz is there. Kennedy has a lead over McCarthy in the California primary. And we see that he's won. And it's one so much harder because I can hear RFK's last words in that speech. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This is where knowing about history I know and you know that he's about to die. Yeah. And people who don't maybe know exactly what the sequence of events might not know that. So, uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's get there. Now, how crazy is this speech when you're listening to it in 2023? Because he mm. says, you know, I know that everyone thinks we're a divided country, but I think there's something good in us coming together. I think we can fight for the common things. I think we all can find common ground and I want to bring us together. And now let's on again. So essentially saying that. Yeah. I, I really think I would, I'm so curious about who RFK would have been um, because I think the transition between the crusading attorney general under his brother through his, the amazing moment when he announces at the rally that Martin Luther King had been shot. Yeah. That's, that's one of the most incredible, you know, one minute speeches I've ever heard mm-hmm. of the, cause just his vulnerability and his honesty and his fee, the feeling of his sincerity. And then I go, well, what would he have been? You know, what would have had, who was this guy going to be? You know, I also, I also think the, it was interesting. So when I did the Star Trek show with Scott every week, I would say what was going on in the world. We do a little history lesson when this episode aired. And the big lesson to me was we think that things are as bad as they've ever been right now. Man, the late 60s, things, yeah. things were bad. Senator Kennedy has been shot. We don't know how serious it is, but we do know that Senator Kennedy has been shot. And the reactions from Costner are amazing. And the Going into the bedroom and waking up Liz. I killed him, honey. Hmm? It won. And I killed Robert Kennedy. No. I shot him down. <sighs> oh, my God. And she's great. Her reaction is great. And I, it's funny. I have mixed feelings about the Liz-Jim relationship and some of the fights as we go along. Mm-hmm. This scene totally worked. I mean, I think it's so good, this scene. Wow. We're going to have to disagree. I, I, I hate this scene um, because the resolution is too quick. Mm. They were just at each other's throats the last time we saw them. 
Yeah. And so this idea that the death of Bobby Kennedy, all of a sudden she's on his side and she's supporting him. You know, it's like Rocky, right? We need to have that scene where Adrian and Rocky clear the air and then she can commit him, like commit to, uh, or sorry, uh, believe in him and whatever, like we saw in Rocky three and Rocky four. When you see here, they were at each other's throats. Divorce was in the conversation in the air Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy being shot and her to all of a sudden wake up and like be like, oh my God, you were right. It was, it's a very male resolution to this situation. And and to me, I think that's where the the it falls a little bit. It should have been her coming out, watching the footage, them having a conversation, her slowly in the conversation. I don't mean slowly like take 20 minutes. I mean slowly like her, it's dawning on her. This is a accomplished. Oscar, I think Oscar winning, I think for Call Mine's daughter, so. Oscar winning actress, you should have a much more juicier scene between her and him because you gave them such juicy fight scenes. You must also give them a juicy resolution scene. And to me, it's way too quick. And so it kind of falls apart a little bit, in my opinion. Although I respect that it works for you, and I'm sure many people agree with you. For me, I just want it a much more fleshed out resolution scene. So it does work for me, mm. but I think you're totally right. And I, and, and, and as, as you were speaking, I was kind of imagining how, well, how else would you do it? Because the thing about thing about making a movie is it's not just, does this scene work is, is this the best scene? Right. And I just suddenly went, man, if you just flipped it, if Jim Garrison had, because one thing that is important that I, I don't think I mentioned is that, when they talk about Bobby Kennedy earlier, Jim predicts that he's going to get killed. Right, right, right. And that's a key point. And if you had Liz hearing him predict that he's going to get killed, and then Jim is in his office and has fallen asleep on his books in the middle of the night, and Liz sees the murder hmm. of Bobby Kennedy and has to come in and wake him up. Yeah, that's, that's a it, great... Yes. And then it does what you're talking about, which is that mm-hmm. we're with her as she transforms from this information, remembering that he said that it was going to be killed and gone, oh shit, you're right. This is scary. We are fighting for our country. I get it now. It would have right. been stronger. That's a gr- it's strong, completely. But of course, when you've got Coster and Oliver Stone, they're not going to give the the woman this kind of resolution and uh, uh, how can I say this? The lead in a scene like that, you know, so at the time there's a reality people egos, male egos in Hollywood are actually real and leading men liked at this time, like to be the people who are um, the focus of the scenes. Well, and it's also just, you know, if you don't make movies, if you haven't directed a movie, you're just really not aware of how many little choices you are making and how many different ways you could tell the same story. Like those two versions, the one that's both successfully tell the the, the exact same thing about the story. They just do it in different ways that has a different emotional resonance. Um, But at this point, I get, you know, I hadn't thought about the Rocky metaphor, but that's kind of what's happened is that she has now said, win essentially and we're about to go into the big match which of course is the trial and before we step into the trial i think is a perfect time to end part three of our exploration of jfk of course we'd love to hear your thoughts we brought up a lot of stuff and so there's a lot of things we'd love to hear your comments on you can reach us on facebook at cinephiles you can reach us on twitter at cine underscore files this is cinephiles podcast on instagram 
Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. That's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or on YouTube where you can leave your comments. If you are on Apple Podcasts and can leave a review, that's fantastic. If you want to support the show, you can do it at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to buy or stream JFK along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, it's at cinephiles.net. And if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how would folks reach you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the outlaw nation on Twitch, uh, and my new website, uh, the Kennedy conspiracies. Uh, <laughs> you find me there. Uh, but no, and on my podcasts, um, oh, my YouTube channel, rather youtube.com slash John Roca says, uh, the Outlaw Nation there, and also my podcasts, uh, The Geek Buddies and The Hot Mic that are out there if you want to download and enjoy. So check all that stuff up. I think that will give you a whole bunch of listening time to go through before you come back in a week for part four of our exploration of JFK right here on The Cinephiles. <laughs>